Welcome to Back on the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. My name is Will, also known as Folk Punk Dad, and today I talk with my co-host Pepe about intuition. We dive into stories from our own lives where intuition played a vital role, and Pepe shares more history about the DIY bandits. We were so excited to get so much listener feedback from our first two episodes, and we wanted to start this episode with diving in a little more to that feedback. One of the things we got, which we loved getting, was suggestions of other artists to have on the podcast. Few people suggested the same people, and they were some of the people we already have confirmed for this year, including Jesse Sendejas of Days and Days and Escape from the Zoo, and Chesky. And if you have other suggestions or ideas, please send them along. We also had some listener feedback that asked if we could talk about some of the darker elements or darker sides of the DIY and folk punk community. Uh, one of the things that they mentioned specifically was addiction, which we can definitely get into. I don't think it's exclusive to the DIY and folk punk community, but it's definitely something that comes up often. And Perhaps we can have April back on as the suggestion was, maybe April can chime in on that. And Will, would you be willing to kind of do an episode centered around addiction? I know you've struggled with that and have more experience with that than I do. Yeah, absolutely. Being 11 years sober, uh, I definitely have a lot to share about as far as addiction goes. Um and recovery. And yeah, let's definitely do an episode on that. Yeah, I think we have a lot we can cover there too. Even uh, myself not having struggled with that, I've had a lot of friends who I've had experience with where whether they were living with me or I had close relationships with. And it was a very interesting time for me to realize how to deal with that and approach that. So I think we have a lot that we can talk about there for sure. Definitely. Pepe, I know that some listeners mentioned that you got married and they congratulated you on your wedding. So this is your first podcast episode, Being Married. And I'm you know, just wondering, what was that like? Were you nervous the night before? You know, I thought I might be nervous uh, leading up to it, but the night before, uh, I was not nervous and I don't think Lee was either. Uh, the night before, actually, we were sitting at our dinner table and I don't know how this happened, but we ended up listening to Johnny Cash. And he has a cover song uh, by the Nine Inch Nails originally. The song is called Hurt. We just played that. And Lee and I both got teary-eyed and on the verge of crying. Mm. That's a very deeply moving song. What about it? Was there something specific that caused you to be emotional in that moment? Were you both thinking of something specific? You know, I can speak for myself. I don't want to say exactly what Lee was experiencing, but I know for me, and I would imagine this is very similar for Lee, that song really hit me when I was in prison. I had access to limited music when I was in prison, and I remember getting that song, and I remember laying in my bunk uh, listening to it, and you know, I was in there because I had this marijuana charge for a rather large marijuana operation. You know, I had the airplane and there was a large sum of money involved. 
And well, I guess I can just simply say what the song says. What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you can have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. If I could start again a million miles away, I would keep myself. I would find a way. And that that tore my heart open in prison. Uh, you know, I, as I said, I kind of built up this giant operation that led me to prison. And there I was away from Lee, away from my children. You know, everyone was away from me. And that song fucking made me hurt. It was just a really difficult thing. And listening to it the night before a wedding, it juxtaposed that pain and suffering that touched me with the joy and happiness I knew was coming the next day of our wedding. And it was just an interesting dichotomy that brought tears to my eyes. Wow. That's beautiful. So how was the next day? What was the day of your wedding like? So we did a, a small event. We did it outdoors and it was pretty intimate. It was just immediate family. And, you know, Lee might kind of, I don't, I don't think she'll mind me sharing this. So we were at the part where they were reading, you know, Pepe, do you take Lee to be in? And they go through the process. And at the end I said, I do. And then they turned to Lee and they said, Lee, do you take Pepe to be? And she, before they were done, she even said, I do. So it was kind of like, you know, everyone kind of giggled and laughed and it was a really fun moment. Uh, it was nice for us to have such a small, intimate gathering. And it was like a lighthearted moment. And it was also really nice that Lee was that excited to marry me. And, and then we became Pepe and Lee Bandit after that. Oh, I love that. That's so sweet. So what about the next day? Yeah, the day after marriage. You know, people asked me, like, was it different? One thing I said to Lee about this was, you know, it felt so right for me to get married to Lee. Like, it just, in a sense, it wasn't a big deal because I knew it was the right thing to do. You know, it wasn't like I was making this crazy decision. It was a decision that just felt completely right. So it, it didn't seem too radical of a change for me. It just felt like the right thing. But the next day we went to the movies. We don't go out to the movies much. A friend had invited us to the movies. So we went to go see this movie and it was basically a movie about a guy who wanted to be a loving husband. That was the whole point of the movie. I had to laugh at Lee. So it was part four. I never saw the first three and it was called John Wick. And in this movie, this guy, John Wick is like, when I die, I want to be known as a loving husband. And like later on in the movie, he says, you know, when I die, I want it on my tombstone to say loving husband. And in order for him to do that, I guess he has to go out and kill like all these people. So he just goes around <laughs> killing all these people so he could be known as a loving husband. And it's it was like it, the movie was a little outrageous for me, you know, for my taste. I mean, the guy like jumps off a building and basically lands head first on a car and he gets up and he's like, well, I'm going to be a loving husband. So I got to kill more people. <laughs> and he kind of goes out killing all these people. And then, you know, spoiler alert, at the end, he uh, he dies. And then on his tombstone, it says loving husband. People had told me it's a movie about a guy who lost his dog and he was upset about that. I didn't see that at all. And he just talked about wanting to be a loving husband. So Lee and I kind of joked. It was my training to, uh, <laughs> to learn how to be a, a loving husband. So actually, she wants me to watch the first three shows, movies with her. So we'll probably be doing that as a married couple. Well, that's a great way to be a loving husband. <laughs> oh, man. That's so funny. So 
an additional piece of listener feedback we got was people wanting to know more about the DIY bandits and how and why you started DIY bandits. Yeah, someone had asked if we can kind of niche down into the folk punk community a little more with some of the topics. And I think for sure, sometimes we are going to do that, but we're also going to keep this also a little more broad and not just exclusively to folk punk. But because of that, that feedback, yeah, we decided to jump into the DIY Bandits and its origin story. So I'm going to go a little prior DIY Bandits and kind of dive into a little bit of the projects I was working on at the time. In the early 2000s, I had spent a summer with a group of friends kind of scamming Walmart and Kinko's. And we probably scammed about $2,000 in a summer. I didn't know what to do with the funds. And I remember I was walking around. I lived in Shelton, Connecticut. Uh, it's an old kind of industrial town. There's a street that's full of old industrial buildings that had, for the most part, been dilapidated. Some were still functioning. And I broke into one. And I didn't know that it was still in use. But it had this giant uh, bottom floor that was empty. And it was like 1,500 square feet of a factory floor. And I thought to myself, wow, this would make an awesome DIY punk venue. So I don't remember the process, but somehow I found out who the landlord was of this building. And I seek out this landlord and I go to him and I tell him I'd love to rent out the bottom floor of your building. And he says, well, what are you going to do? And I didn't want to say, well, I'm going to run a punk venue with a bunch of weirdos and punks and anarchists <laughs> coming in you know, to your, to your building. So I said, oh, uh, and I just out the top of my head, I said, I'm going to do furniture reupholstery. <laughs> so he says, okay, $1,000 a month. And I ended up, you know, signing this uh, lease with him for $1,000 a month. And then I had to create this punk club. And now I had no idea what I was doing. I kind of talked about this with DIY Bandits. I often have no idea what I'm doing. I have this vision in my, my mind and I can see it in the end, but I don't know how to create it. So one of the first things I did was I made up a flyer. I just said on a flyer, giving away free punk club. And I kind of listed, you know, what needs to be done. I said, we have a giant factory floor. You come, you make it how you want. You want to paint the walls, you paint the walls. You want to build a stage, you build a stage. And I just started going to all these different shows and handing out this flyer. And I had my phone number and the email address on there. So all these people got back to me. Some people were carpenters. Some people were graffiti artists. Some people were... Uh, plumbers, right? We had electricians and we just started getting like these gatherings. We would set dates and kids from all over Connecticut. I mean, we even had graffiti artists coming up from Florida to do graffiti on the walls, but they came in and they had built the stage, painted the walls. Uh, we got the electrical all set up for what we needed. There was like plumbing issues. Plumbers did the plumbing. Like it was an interesting collection of kids. I mean, we had hippie kids, we had hip hop kids, graffiti kids, punk kids, uh, you know, just like radicals um, and then just like kind of normal nerdy kids. And it, it was a very interesting collection. And we actually all together built this punk club. And it was such a great place. I mean, people were saying it was the best venue in Connecticut at the time. This, like I said, was the early 2000s. And we lasted for about a summer because we got a lot of hype and the, the newspapers started writing about us. But I had no permits. I had no insurance. We weren't zoned to be open to the public. So as soon as that happened, uh, the city came down on us and they, they had shut us down. 
it was actually quite interesting. You know, in response to that, we held a big march from the factory. Uh, it was called the Factory House because some people were living in there as well. But we marched from there to City Hall to speak and and something like that. Like in a small town I'm from, that never happened before. But you know, I still have like newspaper clippings and articles mm-hmm. and photos of us marching there and about the space. And a lot of people said that was their first experience ever in a community space in a community organizing. You know, we gave out free food. We had it was it was more than just music. There was a lot happening there. But that had shut down and. Prior to that, I had several squats I had opened that were shut down by the authorities. So anyways, I was sitting with about $1,500 left after this place had been shut down. And I wanted to do something with the $1,500 and I didn't know what. I, I had this idea that I wanted to do something that the authorities couldn't take away. I mean, I lost several squats. I lost the factory. I was sick of having everything taken away. And... Uh, by this point, I had some recognition within kind of the the radical and underground culture and community around here. And there was a conference being held in Hartford, Connecticut with a lot of like anarchist gathering, community talk and things like that. I was invited to speak on creating what they called free spaces, uh, you know, free meaning like free to do what you want, free to exist how you want. Um, largely because of what I created with the factory house. So while I was speaking there, a friend of mine who I met through the factory house, uh, Eric Peterson, he showed up randomly at that event. And Eric was probably the first folk punk person I ever met, actually. When I opened that venue I spoke of, it had nothing to do with folk punk. It At the time, there was mostly like straightforward punk and hardcore punk was kind of the thing in Connecticut at the time. But Eric had showed up there um, and he played and nobody came out to see him play. Actually, there was one person hanging around outside the venue that night and I, I let them in for free. But yeah, that was it was amazing to think that, that you know, Eric Peterson of Mischief Brew and yet nobody was interested at the, at the time. But yeah, Eric showed up at this conference I was speaking at and he said, hey, Pepe, do you think you can get me on the music show that was happening after the conference? And I had nothing to do with setting up the conference. I had nothing to do with setting up the music. And I said to Eric, well, I'll try. I'll see what I can do. I don't know who did it. But I went and found the people who were in charge of the music that night. And I asked if my friend can play a couple of songs. And they said, sure. So later that night goes and the music is going on. And this kid comes up to me. I don't know why. He just randomly walks up to me. And he must have been like 15 at the time, 15 or 16. And he says, hey, do you think you can help me find a way to play on a, on a show tonight? I don't know why this kid came to me. I never met him in my life. And I said, well, I'll try. I said, I got my other friend on, but I'll see what I can do. So I went to the promoters and I said, hey, you know, there's another kid who wants to play. Do you think he can get on and perform? And they said, oh, no, there's not going to be enough time. So I go back to the kid and I said, listen, they, they said you can't. There's not enough time. I said, but, you know, Eric Peterson's performing. Are you familiar with him? And he said, no, I'm not. I said, well, you should definitely stick around. He's a great performer. He does awesome music. And check it out. And I said, you know, but you might as well just play outside on the sidewalk after the show. I said, you know, it, why not? And he said, yeah. And he agreed. So Eric went on. And then, you know, the night ended. And this young kid ended up going on the sidewalk. And he started playing. And everyone was exiting the building. And nobody cared. Nobody gave a shit. Like he was right there at the exit playing and and everyone just kept walking by. I think it was me and maybe like three other people stopped to listen to him play. And for me, I loved what he was doing. 
I just had this feeling that I should do something with this person, right? So it turns out this was Pat the Bunny at a very young age. And him and I, he had gave me a, a CDR demo. And it was like the fire hazard demo, which personally I don't think is that good. You know, I know he has said the same. But uh, he went home back to Vermont. And the next day, I just had this feeling that I need to reach out to him and, and we need to work together. So I wrote him a letter. And I sent it to him in Vermont. And in the letter, I had asked him if he'd be interesting, interested in putting out a CD. And again, I had no idea how to do this. And this was at a time before, you know, there was no Spotify. There, you know, Apple Music didn't exist. There wasn't MP3s yet. MP3 players were just coming out at this time. So it was kind of a very different world for music back then. Like you couldn't just record and put your music online. That didn't exist yet. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to start a record label. My thought was, I can envision this. It just felt right. And it's something that the authorities wouldn't be able to take away as easily as everything I've done in the past. So that was kind of what led me to start the DIY Bandits. You know, that that I wanted something the authorities couldn't touch. And then meeting a young Pat and just knowing that this was something I needed to pursue. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think it's so fitting because today we planned on talking about intuition. And I heard you say things like having this knowing, having this feeling. And would you say that it was an intuitive sense for you to work with Pat? I wouldn't have said it at the time. And I wouldn't have said I was conscious of that at the time. But perhaps you're... you're touching into something that was actually true. I've always been a little timid of intuition and what it means. Like some people might say it's a little woo-woo, but perhaps you can give me some better understanding. I know you've in the past had conversations with me about intuition. So can you give me a simple definition of intuition that you might share with people? Sure. The way I would define intuition would be a guiding felt sense that sometimes defies rationality. It seems like I was in that place. I don't know if it was intuition or not, but it definitely felt like I was in the place that you just described. So what I'd, I'd like to ask then is, is there a process to access that? Do you have a way that you found has worked for you? It's interesting because I sometimes I will intentionally tap in to intuition and then sometimes it will just be so obvious it feels like it just like bonks me over the head with like hey pay attention <laughs> uh, to this thing i think to access it intentionally when it's not just an overwhelming very obvious situation where the feeling just comes on immediately if i'm seeking to access my intuition, I do a few different things. One is journaling can really help and writing in general. And for me, writing songs is actually definitely a way to access my intuition about feelings, about a situation. Another way to access intuition is just getting quiet. A decision, do I, I dwell on this decision and see how that feels? Or dwell on making this decision in this way and see how that feels? 
And it's kind of a listening to my body, listening to my heart, a turning inward um, in that way. So I think those are kind of the two different ways I might access it. It either accesses me <laughs> very obviously, or I uh, seek it out. Those examples, because when I'm thinking back to the experience with Pat, when I was listening to him, I was very quiet. I remember being on that sidewalk and kind of silencing my mind and just taking in the experience, you know, from a, a very quiet place within myself. So if I if I was partaking in one of the steps that you you just mentioned, perhaps it was intuition that I was tapping into. And as far as journaling goes, I've never journaled until I went to prison. And I started keeping a journal in prison daily for the majority of my my bid. And I definitely like I would just sometimes know what to write about. Like in the beginning I kind of struggled with it. But then as time went on, it was almost as if this information just came to me and it became much more simpler. So it seems as if perhaps those steps that you're mentioning, like the more someone does those, the more able they become to access intuition. But I'm curious, do you have a specific example where you accessed intuition that you can share with us? One that just came to mind, actually, as we were talking about accessing intuition and using writing or songwriting. I don't think I've told you this story before. This happened in 2017. I was working full-time at a high school, and I started having a lot of difficult symptoms going on with my bipolar disorder. and. I was having to take time off, and eventually, um, even with additional medication, it was still pretty rough, eventually decided that I needed to take a full three weeks off and do an intensive outpatient program with the plan to just go back to work afterwards. You know, just do this program, I'll be good, I'll go back to work. Very beginning of this time off, I can remember sitting down to start planning the lessons for my substitute. And I just became totally overwhelmed with emotion. And the first thing I did was pick up my guitar because I felt like I need to figure out what this emotion is about. And I sang this very heart-wrenching song I was not getting quiet. I was getting loud <laughs> um, about how I didn't want to leave my job. I didn't want to abandon my students and how I, I wanted to stay at my job. And this was bizarre to me because I had not even considered the possibility of leaving my job. That wasn't even on the table yet. That wasn't a conversation I was having. It wasn't a rational thought. But it was this intuitive feeling that overcame me of you're gonna leave your job. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't wanna do that. And I spent the next three weeks trying to discern if that intuition was true. And I didn't want it to be true. So I, I worked against it. I 
made a plan to go back to work. I finished my intensive outpatient program. The night before, the night before my last day, I had a dream that they told me I wasn't ready to go back. But then the next day, they told me, you are ready to go back. You'll be great. You'll do this. And then I left there and went to the school to have a meeting with about transitioning me back. And on the way in, I just pray some 12-step prayers about surrendering my will and just whatever's supposed to happen, may it happen, you know? And so I go in there and start having this conversation where they say, you know, when you come back, we need you back 100%, 100% for the rest of the year. And I'm thinking, man, I was hoping I could come in here and maybe like transition to part-time or have one day off a week or do something different where I could still stay. But it just became clear to all of us in that moment that I, it was the right decision for me to leave. And I still do think it was the right decision for me to leave. But it took three weeks for my mind to catch up to my intuition in that case. So that's just one example of accessing intuition. Said it kind of makes me look back on some of my experiences where I had some similar feelings as you. You talked about logically it didn't seem to fit and that you worked against it. And a lot of the things that I thought of doing, like the DIY bandits and, and starting these other projects, I kind of had this feeling that logically made no sense. Like, who am I to do these things when I don't have the information? It's also interesting. I'm a big fan of Carl Jung, who I've mentioned to you before quite a bit. And he's a fascinating character who speaks about intuition. Uh, he, from my understanding, I haven't studied what he said about intuition as much as his other work, but he describes it as information that comes from the unconscious, which dreams come from the unconscious. So that kind of relates and goes along to your experience that you just described. Is there any other experiences that you could think of that come to mind? I can remember one of my earliest experiences utilizing intuition in a significant way. It was when I was in college. I had applied for a third year on staff at the summer camp. I interviewed and eventually got the call and offered me the job. But I had been starting to have some second thoughts and I wasn't sure why either. You know, this is a job that I loved. I did it the two years before and every job has ups and downs, but overall they were some of the best summers of my life. Probably the best summers of my life in, in a lot of ways. And I got on the call with the summer camp director who, who offered me the job. And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure that that's where I'm supposed to be next summer. And I don't necessarily recommend everyone do this when they are trying to decide a job offer. But what I did in that moment, um, I said, can I try accepting the job and declining the job? Because 
so much of wait, me wait, really wait. wanted. Yeah. You were you were on the phone with him, and he was offering you the job, <laughs> and your response was, "Can I accept and decline?" Yes. Did I? Both. I okay. was like, "Did I? Did I say both things and see which feels better?" Because mm-hmm. I really wasn't sure. I wasn't sure at that moment. <laughs> I, I like this. This is, but see, I'm also I'm very practical. Mm-hmm. So like, I like to see practical steps like that. But it's just interesting you took it to the immediate moment and played it out like with him. But go on. The immediate moment, absolutely. So the first thing I said was, "No, I don't think." Next summer, I'm supposed to be on staff. I think I'm probably supposed to be somewhere else. I just don't know where yet. And then I tried to accept the job, too, on the phone with him. And I said, uh, and I said nothing. I couldn't even bring myself to say yes. So the answer became very clear. <laughs> I had an intuitive feeling to both of those. When you said no, the intuitive feeling kind of guided you to to be comfortable with that, right? Mm-hmm. You knew it was a no. And when you went to say yes, there was this intuitive feeling that you should not say yes. Exactly, yeah. Mm. And I, I do like that a lot. I, as you said, it might not be best to to actually word those out loud, but maybe people can like take that process in their mind when they're dealing with a decision. And it's something I still do just not on the phone with the person offering me the job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I talked with my wife, Cecilia, all the time. And if I'm struggling on a decision, you know, she'll say like, well, how about you do that thing where you say both out loud and see which feels right? Because sometimes I'll be thinking there's something I should do. And I'll say yes, but I might not be fully comfortable, but I feel like I'm supposed to say yes. Mm-hmm. But I never took a moment to actually say no and see how that feels. Mm-hmm. You know, I was always just kind of looking at the one side. So yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's a very practical step to help view both sides of that and and kind of step into intuition. A lot about intuition, kind of you're stepping away from the logical side, right? The logical mind. And you're describing it as a feeling or an emotion. So I had just done the episode with April and then you and I did the episode where we talked about fear quite a bit. And that's definitely something I've been struggling with since I've been released from prison. So I'm curious, is there a way for me, if I'm trying to access my intuition, can I differentiate between the feeling of intuition telling me perhaps you should not do this or am I just simply afraid, overwhelmed with fear that's telling me not to do it, but maybe intuition would tell me otherwise? You know, how do I know if it's fear or intuition that I'm engaging? It's not always an easy thing to do. In fact, I think it can be really difficult to determine, is this feeling fear, or is this feeling intuition, or There are times when I think it can be both, where your intuition is saying you really do need to have a healthy fear of this and um, actually get out of this situation right now. They can overlap at times, but often when I am wrestling with something that I'm not sure 
if it's a intuitive felt sense that I should go for, or if it's a fear that I don't need to worry about, I do have those moments where, okay, I think this is an either or, and I'm not sure what it is. And there are times where I don't necessarily have to figure it out. There are times where, you know what? I think this might be fear. I think this might be intuition. Um, but maybe I'll just go ahead and listen to it and things will be fine. You know, that's happened to me before. But there have been other times where, wow, I'm really glad I didn't act on what I thought was intuition, but was actually fear or an intrusive thought. So I think one of the best ways for me to distinguish between the two is talking things out with other people and getting input from people I trust. Doing that, I think, has been really pivotal. Just getting input from others and saying, hey, what does this sound like to you? <laughs> you know, I'm so caught up in it, I'm, I really don't know. You know, I've touched on this already, but um, creativity uh, is another way to, that is able to help me sift through what is this feeling I'm having all about. Those are, are two of the primary ways I do that. Also, just asking myself, would following this feeling be potentially life-giving or potentially harmful? I have to have to think about that. You know, like, wow, I have this felt sense that I'm supposed to go do this. I think a lot of times that can end up being an intuition when it's an active thing where maybe it's a little bit of a risk. Maybe it's something I might have some fears about, but it's like a propulsion to go do something, um, something positive that could have great benefits or be very life-giving or or transformational. And I think sometimes that involves quitting. <laughs> Doing often involves quitting. Like the example with my job, I think the act of quitting my job wasn't just a leaving of my job because I was also feeling very pulled toward pursuing music full-time. I had just had a really successful tour as a children's artist playing libraries all over Texas and surrounding states, and I was feeling a pull toward that. So it wasn't just that I was leaving something, I was also going towards something. So I think that's another way to think about it too. What you brought up, two things specifically, you talked about quitting, and then you also used the term life-giving. And it's interesting to me because you know, you had asked me in the beginning, did I have an intuition with some of the stuff I was trying to do with DIY Bandits? And the more you describe your experience with intuition, the more I'm hearing it align with some of what I had happening. And in regards to quitting, I would often have feelings that I knew this was not something I should dedicate my time to. You know, that would come up often for me. I think I was pretty good at understanding that if I put time and energy into this, it would not be useful. Like that came up a lot for me in situations. And I guess you can say perhaps that was an intuitive feeling that helped me realize what would be a waste of time. You know, to me, that's interesting to think that I used intuition to better deal with my time in a productive way. And then when you 
talked about doing something that's life giving. And, and what I'm hearing you say, and this is a phrase that I have used a lot, but I never connected this with intuition. I would say to myself, is this keeping me small or is this making me larger? Mm. And when you talk about life giving, you know, I imagine uh, the term I would use is this making me larger? Uh, with the creative process that you mentioned, you know, when I was in prison for the first year, I didn't write. I had a blog. Pat had actually created a, a website for me and was willing to update it for me when I would send him what I wrote. For the first year, I was too scared to write for the blog. And I remember asking myself one day, well, is this keeping me small or is this helping me become larger? And obviously it was keeping me small. But I, I, I had that feeling within me that I knew if I went and pursued this, that I, it would make me larger, it would help me grow. So that was definitely, I guess I would say, an intuitive feeling that I had to pursue. And as you said, you know, it, it's scary sometimes to pursue those intuitive feelings because they kind of seem, and I guess they are, not logical, right? They're, they're not coming from the logical mind. And it just didn't seem logical for me to like, why would I write a blog? I'm not a writer. You know, I dropped out of high school. Like when I was 15, I just walked out of high school. So who am I to start writing for other people to be reading? And I definitely had that feeling that, yeah, it was keeping me small, attaching to that fear. And that if I followed the feeling beyond that, that it would help me grow, as you say, it would be life-giving. And it certainly was. And the creativity started to flow the more I start to write. Like it's, It was a very fascinating process. It's interesting to think, where does that come from? Where does the creativity come from once you start? Like intuition, where does that come from? And again, back to Carl Jung, you know, he talks about the unconscious, which I never really understood until I had experiences in prison with it. But a, a way to explain that so that folks might understand a little better, he talks about the conscious. And one of the best examples I heard, you have the conscious mind, which is like the ego mind, right? What you are aware of and, and interacting with people in the world. And he talks about that, or someone had mentioned that as like a buoy in the ocean floating on top. That's the conscious mind. And then the unconscious is just the the ocean, which is so much. It's so much larger than the conscious mind. It's so much larger than that buoy. And down in the ocean, there's so much information that exists there. And we all have that in the unconscious. And it seems like intuition is just accessing that information that exists there that we're unaware of and so rarely go to. But with some of the steps you had mentioned, it seems like it's a practice of tapping into the unconscious. I mean, I don't know if that aligns with what, how you feel about it. You know, I don't know if there's the connection to the unconscious for you or not, but you know, it's really fascinated me with Carl Jung's work and kind of, he's helped me definitely um, become more comfortable starting to use the word intuition. Interestingly, you know, you had mentioned AA a couple of times during this conversation. And I know Carl Jung worked very closely with the man who started that program. Um, so that's just yeah, another interesting aspect of his work. Is intuition 
an act of t tapping into the unconscious, I think that's totally possible. Intuition does feel like a tapping into something. I think it's something mysterious. Um, it feels beyond my regular mind. So in that sense, it feels like, okay, unconscious would make sense. But um, it also sometimes feels like something totally beyond me, um, where, okay, collective unconscious could make sense. But I think other words that people might use and words that I've used or still use uh, could be the Holy Spirit or God or the universe or higher power or any number of those spiritual um, ideas connected to it. And I don't really know how to distinguish between them <laughs> as far as the, you know, conceptually I can distingu distinguish between them, but as far as the actual act of listening to my intuition, I don't know if I'm listening to my intuition one day and listening to God another day, or if I'm all, always just listening to the same mystery. Mm. Carl Jung kind of dives into some of that, what you're talking about, differentiating between those things. I mean, he's deeply complex, and I'm not going to claim to have a full grasp on the work that he has has written and done. But it's definitely worth exploring him to help maybe understand some of that, what you were just describing. Uh, I know a lot of his work deals with uh, religious themes and the unconscious and the connection between those things. But, you know, I'm thinking overall with this conversation, and back to your question earlier for me, did I have an intuitive feeling? with starting the Daily Bandits and I'm recalling other moments within the Daily Bandits. Like I remember getting a letter and a demo tape or a demo CD from this kid Benjamin. And, you know, I liked it. I liked what he was doing. And I wrote him back and we stayed in touch. And as time he made another band. Uh and then he made another band called Never Say Surrender which was a band that I ended up releasing that music. And and then he ended up going on to become uh, Lost Dog Street Band, which has a, a pretty good uh, following nowadays. But there was definitely an intuitive feeling, I would say, when I first heard that music and got that letter that I knew I wanted to work with him. And, you know, there's another... Two examples involving DIY bands I'll mention quickly. There's a rapper named Soul. He was a indie rapper in the 90s and in early 2000s, and he was kind of shifting into a more political space with his rap. And I remember, you know, I had befriended him, and I remember reaching out to Pat and suggesting that he, Pat and the rapper Soul go on tour, but they have never met each other. And, you know, this was at a time when uh, the folk punk scene, like, it, it wasn't really like connected to rap in any way. There, it is nowadays, but back then it, it really wasn't. 
And I was a little nervous to kind of put them two together on a tour. I didn't know how well it would be received. You know, Soul had never toured in these DIY spaces before. But they ended up going on tour. Uh, they became great friends. And a lot of people uh, really engaged Soul's music. Soul ended up working with Andrew Jackson Jihad as a result of this. But there was definitely an intuitive feeling there of putting those folks together and that something would come out of it. And I would say the other intuitive feeling I had was, you know, when I had met Chesky, at one point I knew, I just knew I had to have Chesky on a album with Pat. And I tried to make that work for, for years. Like literally it took three years for me to get the two of them together. But during that three year period, I just kept having this feeling that was making me move forward with that idea. And Pat was resistant to it. I'll be honest in the beginning, you know, and I suggested that Pat and Chesky try and hook up on this tour and Pat was saying no. And I had convinced Pat to, to do this tour with Chesky and they became best of friends. And, and Pat has said plenty of times that Chesky is one of his favorite musicians, you know, after that. And the album split that they released, you know, came out as a result of that, which is definitely has a very meaningful place in the folk punk community. But that certainly had an intuitive feeling. And if I didn't follow that, if I gave up, you know, that first year, it wouldn't have happened. But that feeling kept it going for three years until it actually came to fruition. Who absolutely adores that album. Thank you for following your intuition and keeping persistent. For helping me understand intuition better, because I wasn't even thinking of that term back then. But it definitely seems like that was something I was tapping into. And I guess before we close out, I can end with one other story that you're helping me understand that I, I was using intuition. You know, I had been selling marijuana for quite some time, and I was making a lot of money. Uh, basically, I just, I was not a very materialistic person. Uh, I lived in a small three-room apartment with Lee at the time. And, you know, I lived there when I was broke. And then when I started making all this money, we never left. I was just, the money I made, I would just put right back into the marijuana business. I mean, that's how we were able to get a plane and, and do other things because kept putting the profit back into it. I wasn't buying things for myself and stuff like that. And I remember at one point, Lee wanted to move out of the apartment and she had suggested maybe we can look into getting our own home, buying a house. And I turned to her and I said, we can consider it, but you know, all this can fall apart at any moment. And this was about two and a half months before I got arrested. And for those, and I told her this, I'm, I'm not, no, no bullshit. I must've told her this five times in those two and a half months. I said, this can fall apart at any moment. And I'm thinking back now, like I had a feeling that it was all going to crumble, mm. you know? And then the day came where like the feds had me on the ground with a gun in my head. And, and I had this grin on my face. I remember my co-defendant, he was with me across from me. He was on the ground as well. And he told me this later, we were in a holding cell together and he said, I looked up and saw this grin on your face, Pepe. And I was grinning because I was just thinking for the past two and a half months, I knew that day was coming. Wow. 
So this it's just fascinating to me to have this conversation with you because I've never would have thought of myself as accessing intuition. And I'm it's a little new and strange for me to think of it that way, but I'm I'm thankful for you helping me see that. Well, it definitely sounds like you're actually a very intuitive person. <laughs> yeah, looking back at it, I am. I think currently my my struggles might be I've been dealing with so much fear that it's preventing me from feeling that intuitive feeling. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm actually looking forward to uh, continuing to do the work I'm doing to remove this level of fear from my life. Once I do that, I'm excited to get a more intuitive feeling back that I used to have. I haven't told you this before, but I had an intuitive feeling that I didn't listen to that I wish that I did. And that was to actually write you a letter while you were locked up. <laughs> I thought, I think I'm supposed to write this guy a letter, but I was kind of afraid. I was like, I've never met him before. <laughs> I don't know. If, is that weird? I, um, so I so I didn't write it, but I, I wish that I had. And I'm really glad that we're connected now. You know, it's interesting because you did not write and I did become aware of you while I was locked up, one of my kids had told me about you when we were talking on the phone. And I kind of had this intuitive feeling, I guess you would say at that point, that I knew I would connect with you. Mm. You know, I didn't even know at the time that you lived in Connecticut. I just knew that we would connect. And here we are having a <laughs> podcast together. Wow. I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you all so much for listening and stay tuned for more. And we're always open to more listener feedback. You can reach out to us at podcast at backonthegrindrecords.com. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you like what you heard and you're willing to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that helps us out a lot, as does spreading the word about the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. Stay tuned for more information about how to support us going forward on patreon you may notice that we don't have advertisements and also stay tuned to learn about how you can subscribe to pepe's new coffee company bandit coffee roasters mm -hmm.